You're listening to Four at the Back with Joe, Pete, Maz and Neil. From the Playboys and Provocateurs to Tiki Taka to Gagan Pressing, we'll be looking at some of our favourite cult sides and players from down the years. Shaky on the facts but heady with nostalgia, this is the football podcast you've been waiting for. So finish up your pre-match stretches and go with Four at the Back. Welcome back to this two-part special of Four at the Back. So rather than spend a long time introducing this, if you haven't listened to part one of our look at the England team that covers the period from 1994 to 2000, you can probably find it right next to wherever you're listening to this right now. So go and do that and then come back to this. That'll make a lot more sense than me spend a long time on that. Right. So with that out of the way, the obvious place to pick this up is the night that Kevin Keegan resigned and he sat in the toilets, uh, actually giving up the position of the England job, saying it's far too big for him. The key, was, he talking, was he talking about the England job? I hope we, so. We can only hope. We can only hope. Uh, but the England job battered Keegan. And the, I want to specify, the, it was the England job that battered Keegan. He'd escaped unscathed largely from Newcastle, I think. We didn't necessarily hold the fact that they'd lost the title against him too much in a way that maybe we would do th- these days. And... He'd done brilliantly at Fulham, everyone seemed to think, you know, uh, even though they had all the money in the world for that division. And he was as close to a consensus pick in all the time I've been watching England that I can remember. There wasn't really a dissenting voice, or at least not one that you heard en masse. As I say, when I go back to Hoddle, Neil was bringing up that there was a lot of positivity around it, but I can also remember a lot of negativity as well. But I don't think he's ever recovered, Keegan. In a way that maybe Hoddle did. So outside of Newcastle and maybe Liverpool and Southampton and these other places that he played. Is it fair to say that his reputation has never got back from just being so woefully unprepared for the biggest job of his career? I think it probably depends. Like, I think nowadays with the, with this sort of distance, I think you you just you remember the good times at Newcastle. And maybe you remember like, you know, the way that that 96 season went. Um, I don't know if people even really associate him with an England job, to be honest. I think people just remember the Newcastle stuff. Yeah, we we, we kind of want to, you know, blank it out. Uh, he's a bit David Brent, isn't he, at the end of the day? You know, everyone likes him, but, you know, no one actually really rates him. Well, you're wrong him. there, because no one likes David Brent. Well, yeah, you do. You, you kind of like him. Some people did. Uh, you you can, know, the the moment where he tells Finchie to fuck off is yeah, that, it's really quite popular. Moment. Yeah, I, I think you know, Keegan it obviously was welcome a, a, to TV at the back. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he was obviously a wonderful player as well, right? So obviously you've got people of our parents' generation who, you know, remember his his amazing feats in a a Liverpool and a and a Hamburg shirt, you know, and a you know, Newcastle shirt and a Southampton shirt, you know, people remember him for the player that he was as well as for the manager that he was. And I think his England tenure was so short 
that I don't think it really defines him. And he's hardly the first England manager that didn't do very well. Uh, I would say that people feel a lot more warm and fuzzy about Kevin Keegan than they do about Steve McLaren, for example, or Roy Hodgson, for that matter. Um, so, you know, and as we said, like actually getting into Euro 2000 was quite an achievement kind of in and of itself. So, and I respect the fact that he resigned after that Germany game and said, it's too big for me, you know, because a lot of managers wouldn't have done that, you know, they would have just limped on. So, yeah, I don't think it... Um, <laughs> See, Bruce... Yeah, sorry. Oh God, it did. You're not wishing the England the England job on Steve Bruce there, Joe. Are you? Well, I mean, he was he was offered it at the time that Southgate got it. So I would be delighted if Steve Bruce was appointed manager of England at this point. Just to share just to share it with everybody else rather than keep it to yourself. Share woe. It's like being smashed by San Marino five nil. I feel I feel very encouraged by that performance. I mean, all, we did our best, and that's all anyone can ask. <laughs> so before we move on from Kevin Keegan, I just want to give a, a kind of quick rundown of the potential. Yeah, they might not all be the first names you think of when you think of the golden generation, but the players that were capped who were actually quite involved in the period, in and around the side, uh, for the first time under Kevin Keegan. So they start with Wes Brown, who may not be the first name you think of, but after that you go Jamie Carragher, Emil Heskey, Jonathan Woodgate, Kieran Dyer, and then Frank Lampard and Steven Gerrard. And he's also uh, in the same game that he first caps Gerrard, caps Gareth Barry, but he doesn't really get much of a look in uh, for quite some time yet. But there's a lot of big names there, and they're all going to be important in the, the the tenure of the next manager. To be fair, Gareth Barry was like 12 at that point, wasn't he? About 20, yeah. He, he played football since about 1896, Gareth Barry, didn't he? It's like, yeah, I mean, he's... He, he's the he's the only player that have played in uh, the old first division, the yeah. Premier League, the uh, you know pretty much everything he's played in. I think he I was mean, in that, that Villa founding side in the first season I, of football league. I have got a picture of the double winning team, and I'm pretty sure under one of those pre World War One moustaches, one of those guys is Gareth. Yeah. <laughs> he played against Woolwich Arsenal and at the Emirates. You know, you got to give it up to him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a trivia question for you. So anyway. Uh, after Keegan, uh, we get a brief kind of interim period where Peter Taylor, who was the manager of Leicester, takes the side for uh, defeat in Italy. And then, well, there's a really fraught period where the next manager comes in and there's a sense that we can't find an English manager to take the England job. And being managed by someone that doesn't come from your country to that point was seen as something that the minor footballing nations did. So there was a bit of a taboo against it. But... When the time came, they were they drew up a shortlist, and the only name English name on that shortlist was Roy Hodgson, who had committed himself to FC Copenhagen. So the two realistic choices that they could have gone for were Sven Joran Eriksson, who was the manager of Lazio, and Arsene Wenger, who had uh, hadn't won the title for a couple of years, but was you know getting rave reviews as manager of Arsenal and had turned them into perennial title contenders. So I don't think anyone has a problem with either choice in terms of the football and quality but it was a constant point of oh, a little bit of a pricking of national pride for the lack of a better description that neither of the serious contenders for the england job were english eventually they went as everyone probably is aware for sven joran Eriksson. it was appointed in late october but the idea that he would take over at the end of that season was something that came to an early head because 
well, the news that he was going to be leaving unsettled Lazio and they, they made a deal that he would leave early. So he took over in January of 2001. So I guess I'm just going to throw this out and we'll see where it takes us. Uh, Jens, the transition and from Kevin Keegan to Sven Jorn and the appointment of the first foreign manager of the England national team, Discuss. I think probably, as no one will be surprised, as a kind of, you know... Uh, freewheeling hipster I was kind of all for the idea of foreign manager actually just because it was so obvious with the Keegan thing like how dazed everything was and it, it it did feel like it needed a foreign coach actually to get things back on track um whether Ericsson was the right man for the job I you know it's kind of an interesting one because obviously history had proved that no he wasn't but he was a bit of a checkbook manager I mean that's kind of what he was known for like the Lazio team that finally won the Scudetto after not having won the Scudetto in a, a terribly long time was a team ex- assembled at enormous expense. You know, they, they, re- they literally just went out and signed hundreds of million pounds worth of players. Um, and that was the team that, that, that Sven led to the title. So, you know, there wasn't any great sense that he was a tactical mastermind. He could certainly, he, he certainly had an eye for a player and he could pick a team, but it, it's not like he was, you know, um, a kind of massive tactical innovator or anything like that. And obviously, what? if you've ever watched Swedish teams play football, you know, um, they're not particularly known for that. So, um, so yeah, I think he was being sold as something he wasn't a little bit to begin with. I mean, I guess, you know, if you go back again, you know, we've discussed this at numerous points throughout the series, um, how, you know, the foreigners in... English football back in the early 90s were all Scandinavian. You know, the best managers in Britain were all the Scots, but I don't think England, I don't think England were ready to have a Scottish person run that team. You know, so a Scandinavian was probably the safest bet in terms of, you know, stepping away from an English manager. Uh, Sven, I mean, you know, Niels summed up uh, where where he was in his career, but you know he he'd done a good job there, albeit with money. You know it it didn't seem like a terrible it, it wasn't a terrible pick. You know it, it it looked like a decent pick at the time, and I think when it came down to it, I think the public were pretty much okay with it. You know I don't think they would have necessarily chosen Sven themselves, but I can't remember a big backlash against him being. Uh, being given a job no i don't th- i don't think there was it, it's sort of like you know how a lot of these issues people try and make them issues but it, it's only if it goes on for a sustained period of time it becomes one and there were people who weren't happy but generally speaking most people were willing to wait for the results and he had a cv that no english manager had i think the only english manager that was still active at this point with a trophy win was joe royal and Sven obviously had trophy wins with Lazio, he had trophy wins with Sampdoria. That's before you go to any of the minor leagues. So the, I think people were willing to to kind of see how, how the land lay. And then, I mean, England won and scored at least two goals in Sven's first five games. And other than a defeat by the Netherlands, they, they didn't really lose early on. You know, his early results were positive. England looked like a... Certainly a, a complete deviation from the the Keegan team. They looked tactically intelligent. And after they 
lost in a friendly to the Netherlands. They followed that up with the one that counted, which really bought Sven a lot of goodwill for a long time, which was a 5-1 away in Germany. It still it still gives some credit now, doesn't it? What a night that was. Oh. Even even <laughs> even Heskey scored. I think I think what's important about that game more than thing else is you kind of get the core of what his team would be for a long time. Um, you know, you kind of have Owen and Heskey up front. Um, you know, he's got the back four of um, of kind of Neville Campbell. Ferdinand has Ashley Cole broken in by then, or is it still Graham Lasso at that point? Um, you know, it's it's still. Do you know this this game has its own YouTube page, so we can actually look it up very quickly. I mean, this is how sad we are in England. We we track big wins and qualifiers against Germany to the point that they have their own YouTube page. So anyway, the England team uh, is Seaman, Neville, Cole, Ashley Cole. He is in, oh, yeah. Fair yeah. enough. G- Gerard, Ferdinand, Campbell. Beckham, Scholes, Heskey, Owen, and Barmby. So Barmby's the only outlier there, isn't it? And that's, yeah. that's, and that's your classic, they didn't know who to play on the left. And that, obviously, again, would be the question throughout Sven's reign. because so, Subbed know, on for Barmby after 64 minutes is Steve McManaman, which I think really backs you up there to a degree. I mean, what do we do with Steve McManaman once Beckham becomes the player that he was, was a, an ongoing concern for the this kind of early part after the millennium as well. So it's, it's crazy, it's, really, considering you know, by all accounts he went to Real Madrid and played played really well. I think he um, tore up a Champions League final. At he, that. he won a Champions League on his own. Yeah, I, he. Um, it's funny, isn't it? Because he, you know, he he had a really good tournament in Euro '96, but he, his England form did desert him quite a lot after that. And I think the other thing that counted against him was the last year or so at Liverpool, he was playing out his contract knowing he was going to Madrid and he very consciously looked like he wasn't trying. Um, and obviously it's not like it is now where, you know, you can watch La Liga, you know, I mean, certainly, certainly through the 2000s when Sky had that really long standing relationship with La Liga, like it, it was so easy to watch La Liga if you wanted to. It wasn't quite like that then, was it? So I guess you, you only ever saw McManaman in European games if Real were playing an English team or if it was the semis or the final. Um, and I think it it kind of... And I think also for Sven, he was very Scandinavian in that he, he wasn't keen on a flair player that didn't contribute in other ways. Mm. And I think if you look at his, his, his picks on that left-hand side over his time, he eventually settles on Joe Cole but only after Mourinho has Mourinho'd him. You know, he wouldn't have picked Joe Cole pre-Jose teaching him tactical discipline. And, you know, that's that's a very important point to make. You know, I think if you look at the World Cup 2002 run, it ends up being Trevor Sinclair, who was, again, a a very disciplined player at that point in his career. And an underappreciated player, I think it's it's worth uh, adding. He probably should have had more caps than he did overall, and it's a bit of a shocker that he didn't have any by that point. I mean, I remember him tearing up for West Ham years before that 2002 World Cup. I just want to drag us back, not just even back to, to the point we're talking about, but even a little bit further. Do you remember the how do we get Beckham and McManaman in the same side debate in the Keegan era 
where they fixated for a little while, and this was a, a very big press concern, about McManaman in a free role. And, and this, I mean, I would have taken McManaman every bloody day of the week, to be honest. Um, they, I'm, I'm a huge McManaman fan. I, I think he's a absolutely wonderful footballer. I understand, uh, you know, I, I think the uh, criticisms that uh, Pete alluded to there about as he was on his way out of Liverpool, probably uh, something that, you know, you could follow him throughout his career. I always remember McManaman being a one-man wall and jumping out of the way at one point. And, <laughs> uh, you know, that summed up who McManaman was, as a, you know, as a worker. Uh, no determination. Yeah, but, you know, as a talent, I mean, you know, I guess when he was coming through the the big name in that type of style was Matt Letizia. So he'd look like bloody, uh, you know, Gattuso next to Letizia. But um, <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's it still, you know, that's who McManaman was. He, you know, he was a, he, he was a maverick of a player, but, you know, he, he wasn't putting huge work rate in, but, you know, yeah. I, I mean, I'd have taken him on, the, on, on that right side over Beckham every single day of the week. But, you know, I understand that Beckham, I mean, to go back to a word that we used about Gaza earlier, Beckham was box office and, you know, Beckham had to be in there and, you know, Beckham did things and Beckham popped up at, at, at very important moments. And, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I could kind of get on side almost with that free role with McManaman in there, but I kind of understand why he didn't fit in at this point. Can I just jump in? Do you think, the fact they only tried it for one game and it didn't work in one game was that too premature to cut off the experiment probably not probably <laughs> not because we had you know we had skulls we had you know the the quality of players that we had in that in that team that would you know go both ways that would run back that would put put a, a shift in if you like i, I think it, it it's it that's probably what you know, cut McManaman short at the end of the day. Part of the problem is, is that it you can only really afford one, maybe two players who, who either won't tackle or who can't tackle. And they have Paul Scholes. Yeah, Scholes is obviously one of those two. Scholes is one of the worst Scholes tacklers in, I've yeah, ever it. seen in my life. He, he, just, yeah, he just wasn't very good he at was it. was terrible at it. <laughs> um, they were rugby tackles, some of them. Yeah, but he'd do it. That's the point. You know. the, the point was he'd put himself still, in. Yeah, you still get in there. Just really, you prefer it if he didn't. Just leave it yeah. to someone who could actually time a tackle. Yeah. Um, it's like he um, watched Roy Keane and was like, oh, I'll, I'll do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Roy yeah. Keane was, was decent at it, to be fair. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but I think the thing with, with England and, and, and their midfield makeup, and obviously it'd be a big debate through the whole era, but... Beckham was always a central midfielder who played on the right because he was such a good deliverer of the ball. Yeah. His skill set was that of a central midfielder, but yeah. he was played on the right because he could deliver the ball. And obviously, if you played Beckham in central midfield, which England sometimes did, obviously Beckham himself wasn't necessarily a tenacious tackler or somebody that, that kind of, he had a great engine, but he, he, he wasn't a defensive footballer. Um, and in, he was better know, than Paul Scholes at that. To be no, fair. yeah, for sure. But but he wasn't <laughs> Stephen Gerrard at, at, no. at that side of the game. And I think the thing is, is that, you know, 
Hoddle played Beckham in central midfield because he he kind of mid-tournament felt like he needed a passer in there. It much the same way that that, that Venable stuck Jerry Redknapp on at half time of that Scotland game. Mm. Um, but but long term, his Manchester United role was on the right, and so you know for England he he, he naturally ends up being in the same same sort of position. But it's but interesting that. It's only at Madrid that he ended up playing in that central midfield role than excelling in it, finally, after all those years. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the game's evolving, think, isn't it? I mean, today he wouldn't see any... He wouldn't even touch the right right touchline, I don't think, in a game. You know, he wouldn't get anywhere near it. I think he'd be Pirlo in today's game. Absolutely, yeah. He'd be, be right in the middle. You know, he'd be sitting just in fit. front of the defensive midfielders. Beckham doesn't fit into a symmetrical 4-4-2 system. He doesn't. He's, as, as Neil says, he's a bit of an outlier in the sense that he's got the skill set of a central midfielder, but has probably got the best delivery of any player in the world at that time. So we had to play on the right. And when he played for United, United, it wasn't it wasn't really symmetrical because on on the one side you had Beckham, who was more of a sort of a, a wide playmaker, if you like, which afforded them sort of the opportunity to play someone much more attacking on the left-hand side because they there were two different threats to deal with. Yeah. Um, England seemed one they wanted they wanted to play him as a as a as a right either a right right wing back or a right winger or right midfielder. They wanted to play a symmetric system, but they didn't have a left midfielder either. So it meant that everything was sort of going through the right, and I suppose it became a little bit a little it was a bit more predictable to play against. Um, and I guess the I mean the other big, big problem at that time was this insistence that both Gerard and Lampard had to play together. I think we I think we're going to come later that yeah yeah we're going to come to, gonna, we are going to come to that in much more detail when we come to the appropriate tournaments I think so rather than get bogged down in it now we'll flash forward back to where we left it which I think was the five one so how have we got so how have we got so negative we are after, English football when we're fans. talking about the, the the definitive game in in kind of English. Uh, Thanks. So, I don't know yeah. though. It was a poor Germany side that, that it was, it that was, was it essentially was, unchanged it. from. <laughs> it, it's it true was, though. It's, it's a poor it. Germany side, and they took the lead. People forget I mean, that Carsten Janker, Janker put Germany one yeah. 0 up, and well, this is Carsten Janker. Our Carsten Janker played a blinder that game, didn't he? Let's face it. Emil Heskey was fantastic. It, it's the one blinder that Carsten Janker played internationally in his entire career, I think. I, th- but then, I think it's worth. But then saying, Owen Hattrick, Gerrard, and Heskey round out the goals. So, sorry, Neil, carry on. Well, it's just it's, it's just worth saying that although it's been built up with this great myth around it that five-one, it was a, a very very poor Germany team that they they beat in that game. And um, as you said earlier on, it it it, it brought Sven an enormous amount of credit. Too much credit, probably. Um, for a long time afterwards. Now, I guess it, it looks better in the sense that that Germany team then went on to become runners-up <laughs> of, of that 2002 World Cup, but they had a, a favourable jaw, to say the least. I think it's fair to say that as we got too much credit for beating a poor Germany side, they got too much credit for being the runners-up in the week half of the draw in that World Cup, because they weren't the second-best team. And no. don't let's not forget here, we're talking about Michael Owen pre injury we're talking about michael owen as you know an absolute elite world striker as a youngster wasn't who the just year he won the ballon d'or uh that could have been. was 2000 2001 yeah could have been you know like i say my, my one of my worst memories as an arsenal fan is him tearing us apart 
you know, oh, that the season final, terrorised in season. Lee Dixon in two thousand and one, yeah. in, in, in the cup final after we absolutely played Liverpool off the park for seventy five minutes, and I was just like, right, my turn. At and this point in like, time, he's a special what player. Happened? You know, yeah, he is. You know, he's on he's on that Ronaldo level. He's on that level of, you know, where Mbappe is now. He's just devastating. You know, yeah. you give him, you know, you don't need to give him half a yard. It's it, it's like Thierry Henry and bloody Jamie Carragher. You know, <laughs> Carragher's got a ten yard head start. You know, he's in trouble. You so know, at least at least fifteen. So I mean, he gets a hat trick this night, and he and he's brilliant and. Um... And as you say, Sven gets so much credit for this. And some of it's deserved because as much as I say, he got so much credit and he traded on it and he did trade on for a long time and maybe a little bit too long, perhaps more than the amount of credit he gets is, is, is perhaps a better way of looking at it because we forget that this is a year after Kevin Keegan that they go away and do this. So, so the turnaround is massive, but it is a poor Germany side and it is... Yeah, so maybe they do get too much, too much, or, or rather too long. But the, the hits keep coming in a sense because they go our way and win against Albania, I want to say. And then the important game comes where England get the point they need to overcome losing in Keegan's last game. And that sends them to the World Cup. And it happens with the very last kick of the game. It's that the David Greece Beckham game. Free, the David Beckham free kick against Greece. What, what I mean... What a game. But also, I mean, that is Beckham's legacy for me. Yeah. I was 100%. never a David Beckham fan. Like, really. I mean, I, I, it was kind of one of those things where he came through at United. Obviously, a great Deadpool striker, great, um, you know, a great deliverer of football from the from the right-hand side, you know. Um, Fantastic never, work rate. But I never, yeah. But this this is the game that shows it, isn't it? I never kind of bought into David Beckham at all as a as a fan uh, until this game because he covered every single blade of grass on that pitch that game. He it was one of those things, and you see it much more often in sports like basketball, which are obviously you know five on five. So there's more of that kind of narrative of an individual player taking a game and and, and making it their own. But that was a game where Beckham did that um, and there was a sense of destiny about it. And I think you get that sometimes in football matches. There's a, there's a sense that that this this game belongs to this player. Um, and, you know, people often forget, you know, Teddy Sheringham scores the uh, the header to kind of start the comeback in that game. But Nobody Beckham's free But yeah, but Beckham's <laughs> free kick was uh, I think Beckham takes the free kick that Sheringham heads in, actually. And then he obviously gets that that incredible I free kick. I 100 percent agree with with what Neil is saying there. Uh, you know, I was never on board with Beckham. I'll go against exactly what Joey said earlier in that Beckham deserved all that hate he got for 1998. It was the most stupid thing to ever do it was so petulant and that is how <laughs> Beckham was perceived I mean, what, what, at that point it I'll was... see your petulance and point you to what Dennis Bergkamp did the day before um... <laughs> I, I mean I'll, I'll point you towards the thing that well, Bergkamp no re- is petulant no, as well I won't no, argue against that I'll just point you towards no one really deserves the level of hate that Beckham well, got yeah, for, for a football game Bird, <laughs> probably a little too far fair enough I mean, but, how, know, long was, how long was it before the chance of Posh Vice takes up the arse actually died off? Posh Vice I mean, got to leave the country. 
<laughs> he loved it. He got he got off on it. I, um, I've got a story from someone, uh, you know, from fans. I can't remember if it was Palace or or Wimbledon at the time. You know, giving him the posh buys takes it up the arse. No, it was Dushy take it up the arse, and he he looked over at them and smiled and nodded. You know, he loved. It. <laughs> you know, he he's a superstar. He loved the limelight. You know, as much as he. You know, he didn't probably want effigies of him being burnt. You know, I, th- I think that, it was that, the- that's who he was. He was a superstar. He he excelled in the limelight. But I, th- I think what took it too far was the abuse to his, towards his family and and yeah. and people not linked to him that 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 that, that really wasn't fair. You know, he, he was. Sure. I, I think he was big enough to take it, and you know, you you, you don't you, you don't sort of turn that's up to matches far, with hair. Styles like that or wear sarongs to don't, to, don't uh, to war trophies and things like that. For two, but, for a few years <laughs> there, he thrived. For yeah. a few years he there, he thrived under it. But I think the other thing is, it's it, it's one thing to um to go through what he did in in France and come back from it. It's quite another to execute that standard of play under that much pressure, and it takes a special kind of player to do that. In, in any sport, Absolutely. You know, there, there are very few what, people who could have done that. And I think that's what the thing is with Beckham. And, you know, until that point, until that qualifier against Greece, you know, what Neil was saying there is, you know, there was an obsession with David Beckham from the moment he came into that United team and he scored from the halfway line against Wimbledon. The media were obsessed with him. He clearly had a talent. His talent was very one-dimensional. He had the ability to kick a ball with insane precision, whether that was from crossing, whether that was a free kick, whether do you that not, was a Sorry, do you not think that, that his wonderful talent, as a, in terms of his right boot, took away from that work rate, that engine, the 100%. fact that he... That he was always doing these other things, and that he actually had, despite the fact he's clearly not the the brightest button in the draw. That when it comes to football, he actually has a pretty decent brain. Oh, he clearly had a decent brain. He knew exactly where to pass the football. I mean, you know, he's. He, I, I always thought he was actually a very rounded player. Um, hey, but, yeah. mm. the, the the problem is that he's a right winger that doesn't dribble it, and we're obsessed in England with the Stanley Matthews model, or at oh, least we were. I don't think I, we are now. But I think it's there. the it's the hype thing, isn't it? I think it's, yeah. I think he the thing was very is that for a, I, I guess maybe it's a southern thing as well. But but you know, it was annoying. Like the whole David Beckham experience was highly annoying, um, and 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 in a sense was never not annoying, even when he was good. Um, is it more annoying in the south because that's where most Man United fans are? Oh yeah, it's true actually. Yeah. Bad. Well, well, probably more annoying to non-Man United fans in the south, I would I say mean, then. I mean, the fact that he was a Man United fan that was a Londoner, you know, probably adds to that fact. <laughs> yeah, he, and the, the whole Bobby Charlton football school thing and all that stuff it was just the, the whole Beckham experience. I think was 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 um, it was a roller coaster, all all, all, all things told. But I think the thing was is you had. When you looked at those other United players that came through, you know, particularly, particularly Skulls, obviously Giggs, um, you know, it, it 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 just kind of he wasn't in their wasn't in their league as a talent, um, yeah. But obviously he did work to get the best out of himself. There's no doubt about it. Um, and um, but it was he it, had an amazing uh, skill. 
he had a very handsome face he had a pop star wife who was one of the hottest in the world and he had like 16 really good hairstyles you know he was he was a megastar I mean, he, 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 he right was now. a megastar <laughs> he was not at any point was he the best footballer in the premier league no but he no, was but, a megastar but he was he was not a bad footballer by any stretch. Of the no, he was. He was never a bad footballer. And when he Don't went to, me... he played really, really, really well for a number of seasons, more consistently than Ryan Giggs, who probably lit Ooh, up. I will argue that. that. Hold, hold on, hold on. Let me clarify. <laughs> In the period that they were both at Man United, Giggs had one or two off seasons. Beckham, as far as I can recall, whenever he was in the side, was consistent every year. For about five years. Giggs had one or two off years in that period playing on the left wing before he discovered how to play more modern football. To be fair, he played more more years on that wing than Gareth Barry played in his career. Yeah, but we're we're, we're not... (laughs) He played like 76 seasons. I'm not not sure he did. I think he ended up as a a midfielder. But uh, anyway, the longest shot that I'm trying to say is that you know, Beckham was really consistent for Man United and then he went to Madrid and he was really consistent for Madrid and he played in two different football cultures and was really good. And I don't think you can do that if all you can do is hit in a free kick at a corner. No, he was a, he was he was a good player. But the problem the problem was is that England have this thing uh, and they do it with Wayne Rooney as well, uh, where. And actually, probably the reason why the United Six team was so good was because they didn't really have that obsession over one player because what happened with Beckham and what later happened with Rooney was that no matter how well they were playing, they were always in the team to sometimes to the team's detriment. Um, And for all of the, you know, this, you know, the Greece game or um, any of his other good England performances, you know, or the penalty against Argentina in the world cup in 2002 itself. Um, there were plenty of occasions where he played on reputation. Um, That's a really good point to, to move us on. Here's a it's question. A, if, if he doesn't score that goal against Greece, if he's not forever indelibly linked with that moment where we qualify for the World Cup, do they, do they basically fight to make sure he goes to the World Cup after he injures himself against Deportivo? Well, I mean, this is... Uh, not unlike what I was just about to say. So you've done the job for me there, Joe. Um, I guess the thing is that it's not guaranteed that we get to the World Cup if we don't score that, because although Germany... Okay, are, but had it been someone else, had had we got the result we needed, but it's not Beckham who... So if Nick Barmby scored that free kick... Um, <laughs> sure, sure, yeah. Sure. Oh, yeah. We're going to some weird, bizarro land here. But okay, go on. Uh, I think if, yeah. I actually think that Beckham at that point, you know, it, we have reconstructed the 2002 World Cup subsequently in such a way that that side was so good. And that isn't my recollection of it at the time. So I think Beckham would have been seen as so important to the team that in 2002. Yeah, no, ma- no matter whether he scored that goal or not, if he was there's a chance of him being available, you get him in the team. And it happens in England all the time. Like, don't get me wrong. Beckham now, whether it happens later is a different regardless. question. And we'll, we'll come yeah. to that when the appropriate tournaments come up. But in 2002, yeah, I absolutely believe, that, believe that's the case. Because, I mean, there's two superstars in that team at that point. David Beckham and Michael Owen. 
Yeah, absolutely. And but it's England had this this habit of doing this like way back in history as well, right? Keegan goes, Keegan and Brooking go to the ACT World Cup, both injured. They only get on in the last game of the tournament and England go out. You know, Brian Robson goes to 86, injured. Uh, Ray Wilkins goes to the 1986 World Cup, half fit, gets injured. Um, you know, uh, 1988 European Championships, Gary Lineker has hepatitis. He still plays all the games. Um, <laughs> you know, like England just do this all the time. Um, it, it, you know, and probably like 96, 98 are the two tournaments where you don't have this massive question mark over an, an injured star and 2002 the, the we'd all get to know the the, the name metatarsal for the first time and then subsequently not for the last i think it's something to do with modern boots being lighter that everyone started breaking these metatarsals because you never heard it before had you but, it's but bit, it, i'm sorry. just picturing like graham suness like saying modern football how shit it is uh-huh. yeah no one ever broke a metatarsal in his era i, I just want to just want to, they just broke their foot in his era, but um, I just want to jump in and say, although '98 is obviously an exception in terms of the injury, was Gaza not treated as if it was sort of a weird kind of pseudo injury situation? Was it not similar? Mm, no, because he didn't go. That's the thing. No, if, they'd, yeah, if they'd taken him, but, been but you know what I mean. Was that? And, <laughs> you know what I mean. But but um, my point is, was that not actually quite a? Hoddle bucking the trend, just not in a way that you necessarily would associate it, is, as as what I'm trying to say. I mean, if I suppose I'm praising Hoddle in a sense because he, you know, he's, he's he, if if you do follow my thinking, then you would say he had but that trend. It'd be strong enough to, to 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 not not take the celebrity player. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Whereas leaving out those those players was something that I mean, Ron Greenwood's a great manager, Bobby Robson's a great manager, and they both didn't do it in certain instances. So, you know, all, all, all praise. I mean, I, I'm one of those people that was ne- kind of underwhelmed by Glenn Hoddle as an appointment. But, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I can't fault him in that instance. I mean, I, I guess it goes back to the real question that in 98, was Gaza really that good? No, yeah, he'd, he'd, he'd gone by then really, hadn't he? I, yeah, I think we're not talking about Gaza in his prime here. And I think the, the, the sort of the the way to look at it, I think I said this when we talk about this on uh, in our little tree. Uh, pre-recording uh, messages is that you know if you look at Germany um, in 2006 you know uh, Balak gets injured for a couple of games and they don't try and play him half fit they they bring in Tim Borowski as a kind of like for like replacement and he plays really really well and Germany gets the semi-final and then um, in 2010 Balak gets injured at the end of the season for Chelsea and um they don't try and take him to the World Cup. They just kind of blood Sammy Kadira and Sammy Kadira turns out to be one of the players of the tournament. And, you know, so it just kind of shows you that kind of trying to shoehorn in your uh, your injured star player or, you know, the guy that's meant to be the soul of the nation is usually a mistake. We also talked about the last season, we, we talked about the Brazil team and famously they were in the final, Ronaldo wasn't fit to play. And... They played him and it backfired horrendously. And so, you know, it asks the question: Is is there anything to be gained by picking players who aren't fit? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Football is not that simple. There's not an answer <laughs> to that question. You know, yeah, that's, that's the gamble, gut, isn't it? You? If you that play them, they have a nightmare. No, if you don't play them and you're shit, then yes, you should have played them. You know. You can't answer that question. That's why the managers get paid the big bucks. 
How many times have we seen someone come back when you're not expecting them and they've ended up popping up with the winner? I mean, that's the that's the headline no one wants to see. It's is the you, you certainly don't want to go out with photos in the tabloids of your star player left in the stands. I suppose uh, it is worth um, moving us along now. So so Beckham has scored that free kick that that means that germany are the team that have to go through the playoffs and they they beat ukraine on the way into the, the 2002 world cup uh and sven don't Sven's side don't lose a competitive game all the way in to this tournament so they, they're going in with really only a couple of friendly defeats behind them uh i think they i haven't written this down so i'm going to do it from memory i think they draw with sweden at the group stage and then yeah. Then comes the really memorable game where they um, play Argentina in the group stage, which I think we're going to spend a bit more time on. And finally, they get the get through against um, Nigeria. But yeah, I mean, the other two games are somewhat incidental. Let's let's come back to this Nigeria game. Uh, sorry, this Argentina game, which is um, it's kind of like the the in some ways it's the second part of the 1998 world cup game in other ways it's the third part of the 1986 world cup game and if you listen to some jingoists it's probably the fourth part of the falklands war so i mean england argentina uh one nil david beckham penalty discuss the redemption uh, <laughs> uh, oh yeah, it's, it's, it's all it's, about the narrative to be fair it he was, was a very he was injured by an argentine player wasn't he Aldo Duchesne, an, Argenti- an Argentine player playing for Deportivo. Oh, I'd forgotten that detail. Yeah. Um, but he, it was really funny because obviously there was this whole thing about the Predator boots as well. And he credited his penalty as being like all about the Predators in the match, in like an interview after the game. Um, but he, he, um, that was a really good England performance. Like uh, back to the wall was a good Argentina team, very good Argentina team. Um, and they ends up going out in the group stage which is you know I guess a lot lot of big teams fell uh, at at sort of that tournament didn't they but um, yeah really really gutsy performance and um, very un-England like that's also a tribute to the quality of that Sweden team which often gets overlooked but uh, I don't want to sidetrack us too much but Uh, yeah it's yeah that's that's true actually but you know it was um, a very un-England like performance you know like a very mature like one nil win defending really well not the kind of thing you expect England to do and I think that's probably credit to Sven you know it's it's like they get the two draws against Nigeria and Sweden and they get the uh, the, the win against the difficult team in Argentina uh, or supposedly difficult team um, and and that's that that's the kind of I think a great credit to him and then of course they go and smash Denmark three nil in the next in the next round as well and that was a pretty good Denmark team so I think people were feeling really good about that England team and, and the, the sort of, I guess, that thing that always happens with England teams where people start to get excited happened. What? Do you I mean, know they, what? They hadn't lost many games, to be fair. Sorry, Maz, go on. I was going to say, what, what you've got to understand about, you know, the 2002 World Cup is that Brazil were on another level to any other country in the world at that point. You know, Definitely, Brazil, yeah. who are known as the, you know, we, we, we've discussed this Brazil team previously on the on this show and but at this point they were by far and away the best team in the world and you know 
I think England were the team that run them closest in this. So, you know, I know we've we've mentioned Ericsson and, and how he's done. You know, he probably ran Brazil the closest to any team in this tournament. And, you know, if the draw had favoured us, we'd have got to the final and lost to them. I, I really do believe it in 2002. Before the, um, you know, that outrageous kind of team goal equaliser. I mean, I think we said this, we talked about with the actual, this team, this Brazil team in our previous episode. Um, England played really well in that first half. And, um, you know, obviously then they equalised and of course you get the, uh, the, the, the freak Ronaldinho free kick and about an hour in, England just wilt in the heat. And that's when having a half fit David Beckham jogging about the place starts to look like a really bad idea. I mean, I I sort of look at it a, somewhat differently because I, I suppose in the sense it's I, it's what Maz was just saying. I sort of think if we'd come up against anybody else, we'd have made the final. Um, I think that's also somewhat true of, you know, all South Korea needed was a little bit more luck and they could have got past Germany. There's an element of that. Um, yeah, it's, it's one of those things. I mean, I suppose... I think 2002 is a really weird time. You, you know, you've got the end of the vintage France team. You've got, the, you know, Germany are in between. You're very early on in the vintage Spain teams. You know, Brazil are the only ones that are, are, are at that peak there, which is why you get, you know, Turkey, South Korea and, and whoever doing yeah. doing a madness in this tournament. Yeah. I mean, let's, let's gloss over quickly because it is actually a really complete performance and we and it probably tells us quite a lot about some of the good things about the Sven Joran Eriksson team which was the 3-0 against Denmark with Ferdinand Rio by this point rather than Les Michael Owen and Emil Heskey and it's a 3-0 first half and they play out the second half like it's a, a training game and it's a you know really mature performance where they, they overwhelm an opponent that isn't up to their level so then you reach the quarterfinals and they have the misfortune to be drawn against Brazil. And um, do England take the lead? Is, is uh, I think I'm right in saying they, that yep. they do. And then Clown, yeah. Rivaldo scores one of the great World Cup goals. Yeah, it gets forgotten about because Ronaldinho's was so like completely mad. But we think we talked yeah. about it at the time. A brilliant team goal. Yeah. yeah and then uh, second half, you get the the Ronaldinho freak goal, which was it across, was it a shot? Deceive Seaman and goes over him. And, and, then Ronald, Seaman. and then Ronaldinho is sent off and England don't make enough of the fact they've got a one-man advantage. I mean, I don't overly stress about that because I look at... I guess the way of, I've put it that I would have is that I look at the, those 11 against 11 and I think England probably lose 90% of the time. So the fact that they lost and got close is not the end of the world. But and I it wasn't other, penalties, so there's, yeah. there's always that. I know other people look at it as a missed opportunity. But I think the worst missed opportunities are to come, personally. But um, that's that's my take on it. But anyway, um, so England, uh, I mean, I, I suppose we should, before I, I was about to move us on, but I suppose we should gloss on that last, that winning goal. Uh, does anyone want to weigh in on Ronaldinho's cross-come shot? Fucking hell, Seaman. You know, you were there in 94 when Naeem done it. Wise up. Sorry, that's it. I think I think probably what I'd say is that Sven was very loyal to 
his players. And I think Seaman went on as England goalkeeper. Oh, at least four years too long, you know. Um, Who I should have been there at that point? No, Nigel Martin, probably. Martin. Yeah, Nigel Martin was probably yeah. the, the the form player. I mean, very. I mean, we talked about this in the Leeds episode. Nigel Martin was very, very unfortunate not to have more England caps than he did. Uh, I mean, but, you know, so, so either, four either years, way, so four years best. too four years too long. You think Seaman should have gone in about ninety nine, or maybe after year two thousand? But but yeah, I, he just won the title though. Well, yeah, but I mean, look at his back four. <laughs> No, that is true. <laughs> There's an argument that Alex Meninga should have taken the Arsenal number one shirt in '98 when he was on absolute form. But you know, you know, David Seaman was. Do I remember rightly think think that they realised that Meninga was eligible for England at one point, or did that well, come I ha- later? I no, have, I think that was one of I our Polish that. keepers. That might have been Chesney. Yeah, Chesney would have been a much better uh, chance because we had loads of good goalkeepers in the Meninga era and we had no good goalkeepers in the Chesney era. What? Yeah, yeah I think Chesney was wasn't Chesney. a good goalkeeper in the Chesney no. era. No, that is true. <laughs> it wasn't but awesome, anyway. But yeah. It, yeah, exactly. I mean, there was a point in the Chesney era where we were looking at recalling Ben Foster, remember? So, I think we did. No, he, he turned us down, is what actually happened. <laughs> This, what was he like? Right, I'm Scottish now. What? What the? What? No, no it was. Uh, I've been turned down for England so many times. I can't be asked with this shit. Yeah, it's, it's the Jamie Carragher argument, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I just, I just think that that Seaman, as he got older, you know, I mean, even when you look, at, I mean, look how how much better Arsenal actually got when they brought in Lehman. You know, they they went invincible, didn't they? I love so, David Seaman. I love David Seaman. Don't get me wrong here but ponytail david seaman non-ponytail david seaman that's all i have to say yeah exactly yeah i think i think i think that era of seaman he is you know he obviously still had his presence and his experience but the reflexes are gone i can see why they kept him though because we've i mean was martin about the same age i'm guessing nigel martin was about the same age at that point he was, yeah. But what I was about to say is that we've actually never been well, the same. Every we've, point, we've never you know. been the same. We've never been the same since in goal since Seaman, you know, retired the shirt. We've, oh no, not at all. We've had some terrible goalkeepers since yeah. then. And even the ones who've looked good have crashed far quicker and more often than David Seaman did. R.I.P. Joe Hart. Yep, sure, yeah. absolutely. So anyway, sure, we are we are out of the World Cup 2002. 2-1, Ronaldinho gets the winner in a freak goal before um, being sent off, and we don't really trouble them in the last half. Nine o'clock in the morning, whatever time it was at that point. Oh, it was horrible. Nevertheless. Uh, and then I go out that evening in Croydon with a mate in a Brazil shirt. That wasn't fun. <laughs> no, no, that that is not a good choice. Not a good choice. Anyway. How we did we get beaten up that night? I don't know. Master heel. I mean, do, do you have massive muscles that would put off a fight? I, I was not wearing a Brazil shirt. Let me put that out there. No, no <laughs> probably worked in your favour. <laughs> anyway, England have somehow come out of this tournament. I say so. I, I like. I don't understand it. I do understand it perfectly. We've gone from going out in the groups to losing to the eventual winners of the World Cup in a game that we could have beaten them. It's almost inevitable that you come out of this tournament with some credit. I mean, subsequently, England. We, we relook on these stories and we reinvent them, but that was the progress. You 
you we were second it. in that World Cup. I'm taking that. Sorry. We were second. But, we may not have been second, but you at least saw a side that were progressing. The qualifiers to 2004 got off to a bit of a mixed start, though. Uh, we beat Slovakia away. Um, but an Alan Smith red card, and yes, Alan Smith was once an England player, uh, meant that we only drew with Macedonia, which is, I mean, 10 years ago, that uh, earlier, that would have been unheard of, Macedonia getting a point off England. I suppose it's uh, the deminoization of international football. Uh, we did lose an, an embarrassing friendly against Australia, but then normal service was resumed as England got back to scoring two or more goals in every game and conceding either zero or one. Uh, and that was a run that they would concede for, uh, sorry, keep going for a long time until a nil-nil out in Turkey. But I suppose the, the short and long of this is that England looked pretty good in the qualifiers for 2004 and in that whole stretch. They generally were scoring a couple of goals or more than a couple of goals a game, and they were only conceding one at the most. Can I just say before we before we uh, go into any more of this, you said that um, drawing with Macedonia would have been unheard of ten years ago. The main reason for that was that Macedonia weren't even playing international football at that point. Oh, there we go. <laughs> yeah, they weren't even a country at that point, were they? <laughs> but, no, they weren't. But, uh, <laughs> I, I'll be honest, I assumed they were a country in 92 when the <laughs> when Yugoslavia split up, but I may be wrong on that. It was quite, well, it's quite a me- messy and drawn out process, right? But, but well, yeah, like, welcome to four at the Yugoslav Civil War. <laughs> the, 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 the Balkan edition. Um, but yeah, I think I think the interesting thing about that, that run in 2004 was obviously the point where mirroring the Michael Owen situation in 97 like in sort of 2003 uh Wayne Rooney uh you know joins the party and is kind of immediately really really good in an England shirt and um justifies all of the the, the kind of hype around him and I think you, you get that kind of evolution where you've got you know Rooney comes in Terry comes in you know, Ashley Cole is now very obviously first choice left back. So here's the um, order. Here's the order that the players in this period that will go on to play 30 or more caps go. Ashley Cole in 2001. And then after that, Michael Carrick, Joe Cole, Owen Hargreaves, Wayne Bridge, Paul Robinson. And then finally, Wayne Rooney and John Terry. Yeah. And, and you know, it's, it's obviously, uh, you know, you kind of start to see some of the uh, the, the Euro 96 kind of France 98 era members of the side kind of come out a little bit. Um, you've also got kind of um, just before Euro 2004, like Ledley King makes a, a, a late bid for the squad as well um, and, and obviously becomes a really important player in that tournament. So it's um, you can see, that, you know, there's a really good evolution and a really good bedding in of the talent um, and, Really, the Euro 2004 team is the, I think, the best of the Sven teams by quite a long distance. All right. So I'm going to uh, jump in and I think this is going to be the most productive discussion. It may take some time. Frank Lampard establishes himself as a really viable alternative in the centre midfield in the season leading up to this for Claudio Ranieri's Chelsea. 
skulls is goals have dried up in the last year or so for england and so the end result is that we see uh, they, they try various alterations to try get the word together but the end result is that we see gerard and lampard in the center of midfield with skulls shifted out to the left wing so i think this is as good a place as any to broach the gerard lampard center midfield conundrum I think the obvious answer is that Michael Carrick should have played 100 games for England um, and one of the two of Lampard and Gerrard needed to probably not play. I think that's the obvious Lampard, answer. Lampard should have played up front. Fucking hell. I mean, you know, he knew how to find a position. He knew how to score a goal. That was the answer for me. Funnily enough, I always think that Gerrard is the one that needs to shift further forward. I think, to be honest, it's like you need to just make a brave call and one or other than, you know, needs to not play. Or, you know, I guess if it was if it was now, then you'd probably be looking at, a, you know, what Pep does is he has, you know, like a De Bruyne and a David Silva, you know, as the kind of three eights and he has a kind of a six kind of sitting in the middle. And had they had Whoa. like a... Uh, yeah, had they had like a Carrick or a um, or a Hargreaves, you know, with with Gerrard and Lampard either side, or Gerrard and Skulls either side or whatever, I think that would have worked well. But of course, you know, Sven being Scandinavian, just like the English, he liked his four four two, and so mm. that's how you kind of ended up with that situation. Now, Paul Skulls, for his part, has always said that he sometimes plays on the left Man United, and he didn't mind it at all, and that wasn't that wasn't the issue for him. He said the issue for him was that he was just fed up with international football and he preferred living in Oldham. Um, and, you know, there we go. Good, good for him. <laughs> Someone's got uh, to, I, I guess. I don't I think mean, anyone ever has said that. I don't think anyone would ever say that again. But Paul Skulls famously right. loves Oldham, doesn't we, he? Yeah, I mean, we give our apologies to the residents of Oldham, naturally. but um, No, we don't. <laughs> I mean, you live I'm, in Oldham, you deserve it. Hang on a minute, you live I, in Bradford. I know, and I deserve it. What's your point? <laughs> so <laughs> Don't do I, you half the time. I just, want to point, I just want to point out by this point, Matt, there's several drinks in, so uh, as am I by this point. So, um, yeah, we're all feeling pretty good about our, um, what, what are they called, provincial towns? Anyway, uh Paul Scholes, I mean, this is the interesting question, I suppose, about 2004, is if the, you do move to a three, you can't play Jared Lampard and Scholes together, presumably. So one of them still has to miss out. Well, well the problem is you can't play Jared Lampard and Scholes and Beckham in a three. Um, no, I mean, and again, this is another problem. situation where it did Beckham need to play? <laughs> I don't know. Like, well, and then... I, I mean, the, the other thing is, I mean, if, this idea I, that you needed to, to to start them all just didn't quite make sense to me. I, yeah, I didn't exactly, see the problem yeah. with having the three of them as in the squad, and then you'd start two and finish with one of them, and whichever one came off. The, the the problem for me is Gerard. I mean, this I may see, be controversial. No, no, I, I agree. Actually, Lampard Lampard played better football for England than Gerard did, like almost always. And it's it's nothing to do with Gerard's skills. I think he may be the most naturally gifted of a lot of them. But it, Skulls played better before Gerard came into the team. When Gerard came into the team, it wrecked Paul Skulls' role because Gerard didn't let Skulls go out and play. All of a sudden, Skulls had to sit deeper. 
because Jared couldn't be relied on because he, although he could tackle, he wasn't as defensively minded as the players who had been in there with Skulls before. So all of a sudden, Skulls is compromised. Now, what happens in the later years is Skulls ends up being shifted to the left, and Lampard and Gerrard end up playing together in a 4-4-2 that neither of them play for their clubs. They are yeah. both the attacking midfielders for both of their sides. So all yeah. of a sudden, the idea that, that Gerrard can tackle, even though he is not playing in the role that he plays for his club ends up handicapping the England team. But is this not just Gerard getting screwed over because he plays for Liverpool, whereas, you know, Lampard plays for Chelsea and Skulls plays for United? I don't think where so. Where they've actually got better players around them, whereas Gerard's trying to do everything and yeah. carry the team think, back. Well, I don't, I don't think so, because Gerard at this point, for most of the period that we're going to talk about, has defensive midfield players around him and is going forwards. Yeah. The, whole, the whole point is that Gerard can tackle and so we see him as a defensive midfielder. And Which so he isn't, no. We, we try and plug him into yeah. the role for England, and he, and he doesn't play like that. So all of a sudden, our attacking midfielders can't be attacking midfielders. And Gerard doesn't become an attacking midfielder until this period after the war we're going to talk about when we eventually shove him up to be a 10 off Rooney, which is actually when he plays quite well for England for the first time in his entire career. Uh, Gerard's My best football for Liverpool. There. Uh, what I would have said there, my argument there is that Lampard coming off the bench in the last 15 minutes in that number, you know, eight slash 10 role would have, you know, been deadly against people. Whereas Gerard, I'm not quite so sure how effective he would have been there. Whereas my issue is, who do you play with Gerard? Whereas Lampard could have played with almost anybody. Uh, I think it's the same issue. You, you you know, you need a number four. Uh, yeah. If you're assuming Lampard and Gerrard are both a number eight, you need a number four. I mean, who's your number four? I think it's Hargreaves, wasn't it? But I mean, Hargreaves yeah. was. I mean, well, Hargreaves was was a big favourite of Sven, but obviously he was quite frequently injured. Carrick, for some reason, just knowing the manager seemed to understand just how good Carrick was, or what he could, what he could have brought to uh, brought to that team. Um, but you know, you've you've basically got this situation where. Actually, I mean, Southgate's in a not dissimilar situation at the moment where England have obviously got uh, a huge amount of talent. But unlike unlike, you know, France, at the unlike France at the, the, the point where, you know, they have all that talent in 98, they make some difficult decisions and they leave someone like Anelka at home. Um, whereas, you know, Sven just he just kept he kept trying the the Lampard and Gerrard thing and saying to the press, yeah. oh, it's all right, one will sit back and one will go forward, when there was so much evidence to say they didn't. Now, I don't necessarily think that the going out in Euro 2004 was no. necessarily anything to do with the midfield composition. I think it was a, a, a sort of a classic... Um, a classic England situation in that uh, Rooney had obviously has a, an unbelievable tournament in the group stage. He gets injured during the Portugal game, has to come off, I believe, if I remember right. Okay, so so let's actually uh, recap for everybody um, what happens in the Euros, and I'll um yeah I'll I, I yeah so we'll pick it up from the start of the uh, start of the Euro 2004. We contrived to throw away the the France game. Um, 
we go one nil up. Lampard scores with a header, uh, which is a dimension that Gerard necessarily didn't always add. Um, not that I'm trying to get one over on Maz here, but I just thought I'd throw that in. Um, so, so England go one nil up uh, against France in that first game. But that last couple of minutes, you get. I think it's Emil Heskey plays a mistimed back pass and uh, that gives away a a free kick that Zidane scores. And then there's a Gerrard back pass that leads to a penalty. And Beckham misses a penalty for England as well. He does, yeah, which is is a, you know, pre, uh, what do they call that? Anticipating what's going to come later. Um, I don't think he's ever missed two in a row. Yeah, foreshadowing. I don't think he's ever missed two in a row before this uh, this tournament, but ooh, I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, then after the 2-0, we go and play Switzerland, who were not the team they had been under Roy Hodgson, I think it's fair to say. They were easier to break through, and I think England beat them about 3-0. Yeah, Rooney, basically against Croatia and Switzerland, Rooney just goes off the absolute hook and uh yeah. the croatia game is really worth dwelling on from because that 4-2 game it, it gets ignored a little bit because it's a group game but it actually is a really good performance it is and i, and I think you know that's a, that's again a point where people thought you know uh obviously you've you've had france in the group stage so you're probably not going to see them again until the final um uh, and you know again it, it kind of looked like uh you know, a pretty, a pretty decent uh, shot at things. Uh, obviously, what's really interesting, I guess, about the fact that, that when you get to Portugal is that Portugal were at the end of their own golden generation that hasn't won anything. So Portugal have this team that go and win the World um, Youth Cup, like under-17 Cup, um, and you have all these players, Figo, Rui Costa, Nuno Gomez, João Pinto, Abel Xavier, like all these players. Um, and they don't qualify for, well, they don't do very well in Euro 96. They don't qualify for France 98. They get to the semi-final of Euro 2000 um, and basically lose their heads against France. They go out in the group stage in the World Cup in 2002. And 2004 is like their last roll of the dice. And so you've got like, you know, um, an ageing Rui Costa coming on in that game and, and in rolling a home back tournament. the year. Yeah. And rolling back the years, um, you know, you kind of you've just got this this sense of Portugal team that know this is their last shot. And England's golden generation are really, you know, in the middle of it all. And it's a fascinating historical narrative when you think about it. These two golden generations, neither of which um, ever ended up winning anything. Um so, yeah, really, really fascinating stuff. And obviously it's a game which, once again, once Rooney goes off, it, it goes into, into the traditional um, extra time drama and uh, subsequent penalty nightmare. And I do think that Euro 2004 team was the best England team of um, of this kind of cycle, other than the Euro 96 one, probably. It, it was uh, undisputedly the team that should have won that tournament. Yeah, this yeah. 2004 team and you know Rooney getting mugged off by his teammate, you know that was what what did it? I think you know it was a really strange game. You've That's, skipped ahead. You've skipped ahead 2006 there. Rooney being yeah. mugged off by his oh. teammate is the World Cup. <laughs> yeah, this is this is uh, well, this is this is pre pre Ronnie. Yeah, but it's, I know it's, it, I know it all blends together at this point. But 
I'm lost. I don't care. Who? who yeah. <laughs> sorry. 2006. Yeah. <laughs> the, so, the, so I'm going to reorient us for the the sake of the listeners. This is uh, England have just come through a 4-2 against Croatia. They're going to a quarterfinal game in the Euros against Portugal. There's a lot to say about the game. Ursmeyer rules out a Sol Campbell goal, which, I mean, I'm trying to weigh up what in my head. Does this, is, is this more of a goal than the 98 one? Or, I mean, Ursmeyer certainly got death threats as a result. So, I mean, maybe that's just England fans being idiots. Who knows? But Rooney breaks his metatarsal about 27 minutes in. And Rooney has been the one, Rooney and Lampard have been the one bright spark about the whole tournament. And, the thing that sums it up for me was when Rooney came off, Sven had clearly decided that the France game when Heskey came on had written him off Heskey because he does give away the free kick that Zidane scores that leads to the, the goal. So with with Rooney coming off, Sven sends on Darius Vassell to partner Michael Owen. Now, I'm a Villa fan. I will defend Darius Russell until the cows come home. Certainly in this period, I was thrilled when he got the nod over Jermaine Defoe to go to the tournament. A, a strike partnership of Michael Owen and Darius Vassell does not work under any framework that you might try and decide, under any tactical device you might come up with. It just does not work. They're the same what player, it, right? Exactly. So what it tells me is that he'd lost complete confidence in Emil Heskey. The idea of playing those two up front together for an hour. And I think that's ultimately what leads to us losing the game. But also because, it's, it's very familiar thing with England where they couldn't retain the ball. And I really clearly remember watching this game. Like, you know, had this horrible, tiny, like box flat in Hove where I, you know, I hadn't been living in Brighton Hove that long at that time. And I always remember like had, had this tiny TV and I was at home watching the game. And, um, they just couldn't keep the ball. And, and Portugal brought on Rui Costa and he he rolled back the years and he, you know, Portugal just retained possession again and again and again and just couldn't get the ball off them. Um, and you've seen it in international performance, I think, so many times, like Italy would do it to them in like Euro 2012, right? You know, just Pirlo passing them off the park. Um, and it was one of them, you know, they just tactically weren't, up to playing a team that were good in possession. I mean, that was it for me, is that there was no out ball. I, I mean, this is a really simple footballing concept. So I can't imagine Sven didn't know about it. I imagine he was ignoring it. Um, the sense that Vassal and Owen, neither of them is an out ball. And Heskey would have been. Um yeah, I, mean, I suppose that is that is the ultimate kind of thing is that you can't expect these tiny speedsters to win you a certain amount of possession in the opposition half. And we were still playing the ball fairly quickly to the forwards at this point. Yeah, and you know, basically, again, you've got this flat this flat midfield four. Um, you know, you know, Portugal are, are playing. I think we're playing a 4-3-3 and they just were able to just kind of pass rings around them, really. Um, I, I just seem to remember there was, a, there was an air of inevitability about it. Even so, like it goes to pens and... Uh, how, what, how late was it that, I mean, and this is a Tottenham uh, <laughs> reference, I mean, how long was it that Helder Postiga popped up with the goal? 
Or was, was it 83, 84? The goals were really early and really late in, in yeah. normal time, yeah. weren't they? Now I've remembered was, what bloody game it was. What was really funny is that he was honestly atrocious for Tottenham. Absolutely mm. atrocious. When he came on, I'm saying like to my friends I was watching it with, I was saying, oh no, I saw it. I've watched this guy, he's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so you jinxed us, is what you're yeah, saying. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> so we go to extra time and... As much as England deserved to win the game in normal time, Portugal deserved to win in extra time. I think we'll all agree on that. Uh, England were lucky to make it to, sh- to the shootout. Definitely. And um, this is the game where uh, Beckham takes the first penalty for England and the spot basically moves under his standing foot. Uh, so there's a very sandy... Screw cons- you, Yuri Geller. There's a sandy constituency to the pitch. And um, and Beckham is distraught and he kind of points to the spot. But obviously there's nothing you can do. And uh, with your best penalty taker missing, you can almost feel the the inevitability of what's coming next as England get through the rest until it's the uh, who doesn't take penalties. And Darius Vassell stands up. You know, as a forward, he he doesn't take penalties for Villa. He never has. But he stands up and misses. And Ricardo, if I was Portuguese, I would love this. The, you know, the whole taking the penalty and, you know, picking the ball up from the fact that you've just saved it, running and taking it yourself. I think that was brilliant. So I'm not going to knock him for it here. Yeah, goalkeeper shithousery. We love to see it. Yeah, it's not even shithousery. It's, it's just fucking, that's, I think they call it drip now. I mean, I'm I'm too old to use that word, really, but yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. I mean, it was pretty fun, yeah. cool. He went he went full Shilavar. Yeah, yeah. I'm so not it... Shilavar. But you know, as much as we, you know, we missed an opportunity here. You know, when it comes to shithousery, the guy that ran on the pitch and threw a Barcelona shirt at Figo in the final. Fair play to that guy. <laughs> I mean, not I mean, even more fair play to the. Bass fan that, that threw a pig's head at him to be fair yeah i mean that's gone down in infamy isn't it goodness me well you know so, so, some uh it's funny though isn't it like the whole crossing the barca real divide thing because michael laudrup played for both teams and he never got he never got that but i guess it's just because he was such a nice guy i mean he did get it to a degree yeah. it's just no one got it as much as figo got it <laughs> yeah it's how you carry yourself, isn't it? And, yeah. you know, Figo always carried himself with that level of confidence that swagger. You know, it it shows itself as you look a bit like a knob. And, arrogance. you know, you're talking about arrogance, arrogance. Yeah. yeah. Whereas Michael Laudrup played like an arrogant player, but didn't carry himself like one. It's the, Sc- the Scandinavian cool, isn't it? So anyway, uh, England are out of 2004 again. I mean, the, the our 17-year-old hope has broken his foot 20 minutes into the Portugal game. I mean, Portugal were no great shakes. Neither were Greece who won the, the yeah, tournament. I mean, bear in mind, the final of this tournament was Greece v. the Czech Republic. I mean... No, no, it's Greece and oh, Portugal. No, that's right, sorry. They beat the Czech Republic in the semis, didn't they? When they were the, a really good Czech team. The Czech Republic were the only team anyone liked other than England in the tournament because they were the only decent technically tactically oriented attacking team and they went out in the semis i think they must have lost to, to greece yeah and, uh and it was uh oh god it was a german coach i've forgotten his name but um, uh, ray hargle ray hargle thank you oh ray hargle um uh, he got them playing ultimately defensive football 
I mean, in many ways, this is the real missed opportunity because there's no great side in it. England are as good as anybody else. They got upstaged by Zidane in two minutes that lost in that game in the group. But France weren't really really two any minutes after the game should have been done. Yeah. Well, certainly the second goal was. Uh, but France were no great shakes. There was no great team in it other than the Czech Republic, and they lost to Greece. So, I mean, maybe if England had got through this game, they could have won it. Who knows? Um, but it, I suppose this, in a sense, leads to what we're talking about with Sven getting too much credit in 2001 because we've gone out of 2002, and it's not really his fault. It's just, it, We've gone out of two. We played Brazil. We've gone out of 2004, and Rooney broke his metatarsal, and we only went out on penalties. So we're going in 2006, and now all of a sudden we've got a side that is, I mean, a lot of these players are playing in the top teams in Europe at the time. And yet, I mean, England's results in the rest of 2004 are pretty good. I mean, the only loss was away in a friendly to Spain, and they didn't manage to draw away in Austria, and what was a weird result. But they managed to navigate some quite tricky assignments against Poland and derbies against Wales and Northern Ireland in that weird group that threw the three teams up against each other from Britain. They came back undefeated from a tour of the, the US, and they also managed to draw with the Netherlands in a friendly. And, and 2005 was, was pretty good as well. I mean, from 2004 on, once we had that bat line established, I think was a big part of it, that Neville... Terry, Ferdinand, Cole, bat line. England didn't lose a lot of games. They won five out of six in 2005. But I think I'd be remiss if I didn't focus on the one game that they lost that year, which was 1-0 away to Northern Ireland. Don't remember anything about it, you know, which is weird because my old man is Northern Irish. Did it even happen? Um, I mean, David... David, David, David Healy made himself a hero in Northern Ireland at that night on Windsor Park. I mean, he scored a lot of goals for them, didn't he? Yeah. I mean, it did actually lead to a, a bit of a crisis of confidence in, in Sven's leadership, even though, as I say, it was the one game that they'd lost in a long, long time. I think there was a lot of, um, you know, misgivings in the press and in the fan base by this point that maybe Sven wasn't the man to kind of, you know, to take this team on. And he'd essentially done as much as he could because, you know, that was a really talented group of players that, you know, kind of had, had been to two quarterfinals, but, you know, we all know England specialise in getting to quarterfinals, but of course both Venables and Robson, has has gotten to semi-finals, so it, it was certainly, I think, the sense that it needed a bit of a freshening up. Um, Can I just jump know. in quickly and say how much of that England get to, to quarterfinals thing is a Sven legacy? Because we say that England got to semi-finals under uh, Terry Venables and Brian uh, Bobby Robson, not Brian Robson. Christ, that's <laughs> God, that's that's a thought, isn't it? But I mean, let's be honest, those are the two good results in what were, I mean, since 1970, really. Those are the only two good results before the Sven era. So how much of that is a rewriting after the fact of of Sven making us maybe not brilliant, but consistently a quarterfinal team? That's the thing. I mean, the English league is is at this point, 
point one of the richest in the world it's that they should be making quarterfinals at least given the standard of the league and the standard of the players that are coming through i mean it's you you make the argument that if you're not making the last eight given that england are ranked top 10 all the way through this aren't they i think yeah i mean it's it's obviously a uh a vintage group of players and I think that's that's the disappointment it's it, it's not that Sven necessarily did a bad job he did a very solid job but you know with that group of players he perhaps could have could and maybe should have done better but then again if you listen to Rio Ferdinand and you listen to Frank Lampard and they, I have both of them talk about this very eloquently they say that the club rivalries between Chelsea, Arsenal and United and Liverpool at this time, you know, the big four were so bitter that essentially during England camps, all the Liverpool players sat together, all the Chelsea players sat together, all the Arsenal players sat together, all the United players sat together. And, you know, there wasn't a sense of a United group of players i'm who, sorry that's a management issue it, it might yeah. yeah absolutely it might well be but but uh, I, i'm just it is I'm just saying what I, they've said you know it's, it's a very if you, if you can seek it out it was on bt a couple of years ago yeah. after one of the, the you know they used to do that segment after the the saturday night game where they'd basically just have a chat um it's really interesting if you if you can if you can if you can find it um, and, you know, that's what they all say is they said that, you know, that was a contributing factor, you know, that basically a lot of them weren't really even on speaking terms. It's quite sad if that's the case, when, um, yeah, yeah. especially when you consider their backgrounds, you know, I you know, Rio Ferdinand coming with a lot of those Chelsea players at West Ham. It's quite sad, really. You know, those United players having done absolutely everything in the game, you know, that you can't win anything with kids coming through, you know, guys like Gary Neville, you know, they should have been the ones to really, you know, and Beckham as a Londoner, you know, and captain. Well, should you, have been the ones bringing that together. Who, you don't I know just, that all of them were doing that. It's, it's, no, no, no. They're young men and they're kind of very easily influenced. And if, if there's a strong influence from one, or even possibly from outside the squad, I mean, I want to I want to remind us and uh, just quickly to jump in and remind us of what Maz said very early on in the part one of this conversation, which was club over country. And I mean, how do we know that isn't what was going on during what was a ridiculously fraught era of Premier League? Yeah, and that's exactly what it was. If you look at, at those rivalries. You know, Chelsea and Liverpool at that time, yeah. from the ghost goal onwards, had an incredibly bitter rivalry. Arsenal and United, like, basically had a, you know, a kind of 22-man brawl every time they played. Yeah. Um, so so it, what coach could have overcome that is what I wanted to, to lead to. I mean, Sven's clearly not the man to do it because he's a tactician rather than a man-manager. But who would have had the tactical nous to do it combined with the... Is it tactical nous or no, at no, that no, point? You've no, I got mean, to turn around and say you're English. You're playing for England today. No, what, what I mean to... is, what I mean is, you've got to have both at that point. It's not a one or the other. Why does it have to be one person? Well, Sam Allardyce. I'm saying that 
with no <laughs> up whatsoever but Sam Allardyce. Quite honestly, bring, bring in Mike Bassett. He'd have sorted it out. Get Ricky Tomlinson in there and just remind him who, who they play for England and then Sven can teach him about the football. Yeah, or, and I, I think that's the thing there. You know, you've got great players that, you know... The, I think the I think the thing was that because Sven perhaps didn't quite grasp that about English football that it's perhaps slightly because it's, there's a very tribal dynamic to uh, English football and the rivalry between some of the clubs even when it's not geographic necessarily and they need I think they needed someone in the camp to be able to to sort of who had the wherewithal to kind of go right this could be a problem. Let's make sure that these guys are pulling in the same direction. And I, just do we don't think, think that, I don't think Sven saw that as a problem. I mean, do we think in hindsight that maybe that should actually fall on Steve McLaren? Possibly. I'm okay with blaming Steve McLaren, yeah. Yeah, I mean, blame him for everything. But I think, yeah, I think what you can say about Sven is there was some weakness there. There was some weakness in him consistently picking players regardless of form. Um, you know, particularly Gerrard at certain points, but also um, Beckham gets a, got a, a massive free pass. Owen, after a certain period of time, starts to get a massive free pass. Um, you know, Rooney is a bit of a flat track bully. Like he scores bags of goals against crap teams and then against good teams, he really starts to not do very much after a certain point. If you look at Rooney's however many England goals he's got is he broke Charlton's record right so he got like 50 something England goals I mean that's a later problem right that's for subject yeah yeah but but just just but just kind of I think that you know Sven what you can say about Sven is that there is some weakness in his team selections at certain points where he relies on the old favourites and I think you can say as well that if there were divisions in the camp he didn't do enough to try and heal them I think for me, some of the problem is that Rooney is the only really consistently strong looking attacker in England at this point in time. And we started off this talking about how great the 1990s were as a period for strikers. And so many of those players would have walked into the subsequent team, especially when Rooney is not looking fit for the 2006 World Cup. We end up taking him just almost on a whim. Like, oh, he might get better. I guess and this is the influence of all that money coming from the Premier League, isn't it? it it's the Beckham thing again, though, isn't it? It's it's like he's the he's he's England's talisman. He has to go. Yeah, yeah. But the point is that he's the only striker. So if we had alternates, if we had players that were competing with him, and as much as I love Peter Crouch and Jermaine Defoe and some of these other players that come in, they were not competitors for Wayne Rooney. They were just. Other, they were just other strikers who happened to be scoring goals. Remember that Owen does go though, doesn't he? He goes through, he gets injured during the World Cup. Well, this he does, is, this he does is the, go. This is part of what I was going to say is that the Michael Owen that goes is not the Michael Owen that had been there for several years, several tournaments before. Yeah. We are still taking a diminished Michael Owen to the World Cup and he ends up getting seriously badly injured in 2006, which yeah. makes a mockery of the entire pick. But I'm not sure he deserved to be there in the first but, place. But I would Even... defend Jermaine Defoe and say that I think that he should have got a really good run of games um, around that point in time with, um, you know, with Rooney. And I, and I think he, he he would have done really, really well. I, I think 
Well, you remember that not that long ago, we both agreed that Jermaine Defoe, years after this, was both of our pick for our combined clubs 11. So I'm yeah. going to agree with you on that. J- Jermaine Defoe's record defends that, to be fair, you know, across his career. He's younger and, at this point, isn't he? Yeah, he must be, what, 23, 24 at this point? Older than Rooney, I guess. Not by much, though, yeah. But the the difference was, at this point, Jermaine Defoe was not someone that would win you a game in the way that Wayne Rooney was, at least in the public imagination. No, sure, but, you know, Rooney's not the be-all and end-all. And I guess what, you know, if we go all the way back to 96 and we talk about the, you know, the level of number nines we had at that time, but, you know, Rooney himself wasn't a number nine at this time. And really, you know, traditionally he wasn't, I mean, I guess he was in that in the fact that he wore the number nine shirt. However, you know, you know, you don't look at Rooney as a in the same role as Shearer as that number nine type striker. You know, he can he can play just off the striker or he can play up top. So you know, you've got more options with Rooney. You know, and I guess Defoe could have been that guy, but you know, you got Crouch, you got. Who else was in contention at that time? We certainly weren't as strong as we were in 96. And that's my point. I mean, you you took Rooney on the premise of if he recovers, he's better than any other option we have. And Crouch and and, um, Defoe were really the only two other names in contention. I can't even remember. I think Walcott may have been the fourth striker. He was, yeah. Was Kevin Davis in the mix? No, no. Kevin Davis (laughs) doesn't get picked for a year or two. I think Fabio Capello is who eventually caps Kevin Davis. But I think, you know, Peter Crouch obviously starts scoring goals for England as soon as he comes in. And so actually, even though they're not necessarily against great teams, um, there was a, the public really took to Peter Crouch. And um, and I guess he did offer something different, underrated player on the deck as well as in the air and scored that hat trick against um, Jamaica in the warm up game. And everyone was feeling really good about Peter Crouch. And to be fair to Crouch, to be fair I mean, to Crouch, does this not he scores go- that goal in the... Trinidad game that gets a really vital win. Does I mean, how it go into the, you know, we're a long way away from the term false nine being, you know, used in, in football still in 2006. However, does this not just lend more into the fact that a Gerard or a Lampard could have played, taken that role? Well, I, I mean, that's a more interesting point than the one I was going to make. I was going to say that um, we clearly didn't have the strikers that we would play along with this golden generation idea. We had wonderful pros who could do the job, but they weren't the, you know, for all that Crouch and Defoe were great Premier League strikers, they weren't generational talents the way that Lampard was for Chelsea and Gerrard was for Liverpool. But I think Mazda on the more interesting question in the light of tactics that have come on more recently. I mean, I think, Lampard is a more conventional centre midfielder and Gerrard looks more like a false nine. And for me, he played his best football for England as a 10 in the subsequent years. I mean, is there something to be said for what if we just abandoned that 4-4-2 altogether and played one of them as an attacker? You know, I've got a really out there one, which I've always held to privately, um, which was that in that 2006, 2005-06 season, um, Spurs used Aaron Lennon as a 10 a few times. Uh, and he wreaked absolute havoc um, because he was so quick. And he did go to that tournament, if I remember rightly. Um, yeah, and, he did. Uh, and And played well off the bench. 
And I think in the absence of a fit Rooney, I think he, you know, because obviously they took, I mean, they took Walcott, which was a waste of a pick. But, but you know, I think Lennon was, was, was a kind of a guy who might have been in that sort of surprise, maybe not the impact that Michael Owen had, but, you know, it, it's not a million miles away, like a guy with absolute electric pace that just offered something different uh, off the front. Like he could have been really, really effective, I think. You know, the saddest thing about all this is that, you know, Robbie Fowler was still only about 30 at this point. Oh, but Robbie Fowler was a shit. Oh, 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 I know. Oh, I know. But, and then, it had he stayed what, fit. What yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. If he'd stayed fit, he'd have been in his absolute prime. Um, yeah. and, oh, Shall we what? recap 2006? Because, I mean, this is the, the, the era where so many of the England players are in the elite of world football and it's a genuine golden generation and if you'd pick an 11 seven or eight of them would be competitors for the best player in their position and that's probably not happened since 1970 and they they do nothing this is this is for me what is so disappointing about 2006 they never turned up with the possible exception of the defense who are consistently pretty decent and joe cole who does a decent job on that left wing England only conceded twice in the whole tournament which is why I think the defense probably may maybe deserve a bit of a pass such an easy group though wasn't it but I mean twice in the whole tournament I I call that pretty good regardless to be honest the the fact you go through five games you only concede twice I'm going to give you a pass but they play with so little attack in verse there's there's so little to it they only record a one nil win over Paraguay because someone from a free kick knocks it in. It Beckham puts in a, a pretty good delivery, but uh, it actually requires a Paraguay head to actually put it into the goal. It, what have we got there? There's, um, I think, quite a dubious 2 0 win over Trinidad and yeah. Tobago because the first goal really should not have stood. I mean, Peter Crouch could not have pulled the hair of his opponent any harder than he did to get that lift. Uh, we draw two all with Sweden in the final group game. Joe Cole scores a wonderful goal, but oh, we managed. And that's when Michael Owen ruins his knee, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Which is the end of Michael Owen as anything more than a fox in the box predator. I mean, that's all he's got yeah. left left after this after that injury. Uh, it. I think Joe Cole's goal is arguably the one moment of flair in the whole tournament. Um, what about the Ecuador game? Is that a Beckham free kick? Uh, it's a Beckham yeah, free kick. Is. Yeah, one nil, and Beckham free kick gets us through. So again, England, the they are still one of the favourites to to go through the whole tournament because of the quality of players that they've got. But like Brazil, who are another one of the favourites, they foundering from game to game, and they don't look like a good side. Yeah, pretty it's pretty sad, a- really, when you consider it. You know, although you know, two thousand six across the board is. You know, countries not really at, at at the level that they are, and you know that's where you know Italy really come out of nowhere and win it without a huge amount to 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 what they've got. You know, against an aging France team who you know Zidane just messes it up in the end in his last game, but. Uh- Italy are organised, basically, is all you can say about them. I mean, but, well, they've, they've that, just basically got the best defence in the world, even, haven't they? <laughs> it, surely it makes it even sadder that, that England didn't capitalise on this 
yeah. this year because they really I, should have. The, you know, they didn't have huge amounts of competition. You know, you know, you go back four years previously to the previous World Cup, and you could say that. You know, I said earlier that that England were unlucky, but Brazil were at their absolute, you know, peak at that point. I think there was just too much going on around the squad. Like, it was this was the this was basically the Wags one, wasn't it? Yeah, that was bad. Um, but there was also there was the well, there was also there was the fake shake thing at the start of the year. So at this point, Eric Ericsson is again a bit of a lame duck. So that's um, January. It's January and it's it's Villa, isn't he? Isn't it? It is Villa, yeah. Uh, It's a it's a news of the world sting, and um, they basically get him to commit on tape that he would leave England, manage Villa, and sign David Beckham for Villa. uh, In this, um, it's worth remembering that at this point, Villa are limping to Premier League survival under Doug Ellis. This is not. The somewhat money bags Villa that you're going to get in subsequent years. Uh, so for Sven to be doing this on tape is it's embarrassing enough if you're just like Joe Schmo off the street admitting that on tape, isn't it? I'm going to be kind and say it's naive. <laughs> I mean, it, it's yeah, in that but... era, fake shake was just they they had one a week pretty much, didn't they back then? I mean, you can't um, have watched much club football if you thought David Beckham was going to Aston Villa. I I think what we know about that time period is that if you could have suddenly turned up with a lot of money, then people would go to you because that's basically that's, that's kind that, of that, true. That is the Notts Charles- County. Uh, well, uh, although Sven Sol- Eriksson did go to Notts County when they had lots of money, so and you know. and, and so did Sol Campbell. I mean, the, <laughs> the the point is that that was the Chelsea model, and the idea that if you could do a a Chelsea model in England's second city with their biggest club in the second city. That's not a ludicrous proposition. The stupid point is putting your voice to that on anything that could be remotely recorded. I mean, it, it's a, I mean, Sven was not media savvy. He was not used to the kind of intrusion that the tabloid press would put on as the Ulrika Johnson affair clearly yeah. showed. Nancy um, Della Leo and all that. Yeah. So, I mean, he was surprised by a lot of that and, You've got to give it out to him, though. Fair play, <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I think I mean, it was, it's kind of funny, isn't it? But there's also an element of there's a lack of professionalism around it. And I suppose over the years that the, the ultra professionalism around professional football and international football has grown. But it, you can't imagine that that was that was in any way conducive to that team going on and, and winning the World Cup. Um, no, no, but I can imagine it was normal at the time, which is the weird thing. Uh, yeah, I think I, I, the, the amount of pressure that, go, that particularly went on the England team at this stage. I mean, I don't know what it's like in other countries, but you feel like the the, the expectation that that is put upon the England team to go to a World Cup and perform that's that's an awful lot. And I think they were fed up with it. We're talking about a period as well in which a I'm not going to name names, but I mean, a Sky Sports reporter is alleged to have climbed down the side of a Premier League manager's house because his wife came home. I mean, this is the era that we're talking about. So uh, it's not professional. It's not something that would happen now. But the Premier League was kind of the wild, wild west until probably until Sven really bore the brunt of this stuff. 
And yeah, 2006 really felt like a culture shock in some ways. I think so, they were just fed up with it, to be honest. They weren't, they, the England players were fed up of the the pressure and the speculation. And they, and it was, it looked like a team that took no joy in playing football. Yeah, that, that's, um, that's the important point. I mean, how much talent is in those sides and how many of the goals are David Beckham set pieces, either penalties, free kicks, someone knocks it in off the free kick. I mean, they didn't... Underrated sp- as well, how exhausted were they from the fact that the Premier League has more games than any other top league, finishes their season comparatively late. Yeah. It's the, you know, it doesn't have a winter break. The two the, best sides are going late in the Champions League. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I think you you've got a factor you've got to factor that in as well because it's all every England manager the one thing that unites all of them except for failure is the fact that they all bemoan the lack of a winter break. Uh, see, I don't know. I, I've never been... I understand the logic behind the winter break, but you're a footballer, you love it, you're going out and playing in a big game at the end of the season. I don't know. I, I think you find that something extra if you're a Ronaldo or you're a, you know, a Messi or someone like that. And that's fine if you're fruit. fit enough to play. But we England have this history of constantly going to tournaments with players that are they're, they're done. They can't they haven't got anything left to give because the Premier League is one of the most physically demanding leagues in the world. They play, you know, they play 38 league games. There's two cup competitions. Most of those players are playing European football as well. Now they want to expand the, the Champions League, which is a total nonsense as well. But it's... OK, so if you had a two-week oh, break six weeks earlier, would that be any better because you played in Spain, Italy? But yeah, I do, but if you look at that tournament, you know, the, the, the teams that do really well, Germany, Italy, France, they all have them, you know... Uh, and then and they've only got, they've only got one cup competition. Yeah, and they the, the cup competitions are sort of not treated the, the way that are. Well, I mean, I mean I what in Italy? I think player, what top league manager is playing their their players all through the season. Uh, that I mean, stage as they were not resting them in. At this stage, no, they're not. Because the, um, I mean, they weren't playing in the League Cup then. To be fair, the League Cup was last treated remotely seriously in the 1990s i think well, it's fair it kind of depends i think Mourinho took it pretty pretty uh pretty deadly seriously when he was Chelsea in that, manager but. in that first year because, because seriously now. in that first year because he knew that if you won the league cup you went on to win other things because it was the first chance to win the tournament and i think pep is similar to Mourinho in that you may make some changes in the early rounds but once you got to a decent stage in it you started to to um, play your first team uh, there's very little sentiment for some of these managers in the way that it was when, um, I mean, I remember the, do we play Brad Guzan in goal? Cause he's played in the early rounds debate at Villa. And I don't think the, the best managers have that kind of carefulness about players' emotions. I mean, I think I mean, I'm actually, I think I'm, I'm actually with Matt, I think. Into these tournaments, you know, I think, just I think I'm England with were, Premier League players were still playing deep into these tournaments. That'd be my argument here. So, so for me, I think 
I'm not sure the winter break makes a massive difference. And the ultimate thing that was doing this team in was they were playing a 4-4-2. Neither Gerard nor Lampard played in a 4-4-2 for their clubs. I'm not sure they'd ever played well in a 4-4-2 for Chelsea or Liverpool. Someone might correct me on that, but I believe... I think Lampard played it a bit for West Ham, but he was very young. Yeah, but not for Chelsea. And Chelsea's no. when he comes through as an England international. I mean, he's a, his England career at West Ham is a little bit like Barry's at Villa before the McLaren era, where he comes, he's in and out of the side. He occasionally has a role on the bench. He becomes a regular in the build-up for 2004, which was in that Claudio Ranieri season. And to me... They both played in a 4-3-3. The obvious answer is to play them in some sort of 4-3-3 or to promote one of them to playing off the striker. And, yeah, I mean, that for me is the ultimate problem. If you've got someone that can play a Carrick or a Hargreaves role, and I think Hargreaves would have been the better choice in the, in that time, uh, given the role he played for Bayern, then, yeah, I mean, that changes the equation immensely in terms of them looking tired and in terms of the creativity. Yeah. Hargreaves um, does play, doesn't he? But he plays. Does he play on the left? No, he plays on the right. Or something weird. Like Hargreaves plays in a weird position. He's I'm a sure utility, he plays. He's a utility player, so he fits in at right back, left wing, centre mid. That's it. Because he plays. He, he takes a penalty, doesn't he, in the uh, the shootout against Portugal? He's the one player to score. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And this is a wonderful exclamation mark on all that we're talking about about how you fit these players into the side because Frank Lampard. Steve and Gerrard both missed their penalties and the much maligned Owen Hargreaves where no one in the English press really seems to understand what he does in the team. And then he actually has the a dream tournament. He plays really well and converts everybody and he goes on to score. Now let's gloss over the fact that Jamie Carragher has this retaken penalty because that messes up the narrative a little bit, but it's, it's almost the ultimate punchline to the golden generation that the two prized midfield assets miss their penalties and the guy that we've overlooked is the one who can put it away. And also he played for a German team and Germans don't miss pens. But, you know, something else to look at here is, you know, we've talked about how England weren't great in this tournament and I'm not going to argue against that because we weren't, you know, uh, again, I think it was Neil that said we were we were decent defensively, but you know going forward we weren't anywhere near what we should have been. But you know Rooney doesn't get a red card. What what are we talking here? We're through well, to the next round. Well, um, I mean I I've always held that view, and then I went back and looked at the game again recently, and uh, I mean Portugal have sixty percent possession that game. They have. Oh, 20 attempts on target to England's eight or nine. I've always held that actually that was what swung that game. And I look back on it and I go, oh, maybe. Yeah, maybe. I think it was the 04 it, game revisited, really. I think, it, you know. Is it, is it the inverse of the 04 game is what I was going to say, where we were we were clearly seven minutes away in 2004. Were we actually a little bit lucky to even make it to penalties in 2006? Yeah, I think I think that Portugal team would have turned us over regardless of Rooney being on the pitch, to be honest, because it was a half fit Rooney and they had a fit Ronaldo. It's um, still 10 against 11. And, you know, don't get me wrong. Ronaldo, we're talking about a, a, a guy, I guess, still coming through at this point uh, to be the greatest, greatest he's player, just had his first second season, greatest player basically. in the world. So, I mean, I don't think that they necessarily go on and win the game because they didn't win it 11 against 10. 
But I think that is a testament to our defence. I don't think we go on and win it with 11. Because we've seen in, not only in football, we've seen in all sorts of sports, that actually the 10 men can galvanise. And I think that's what happened. I think we got away with one. And I've, I've changed my mind over the years. And, and this is kind of hard because to me, this is the missed opportunity to win a World Cup much more than 2002. Because I look at, the, the way I look at it is not that Brazil were there for the taking so much as how if you were to play the game 10,000 times, who would win more often than not? And I actually think the England team in 2006 is better than the Portugal team in a way that they're not better than the Brazil team in 2002. So 2006 represents the missed opportunity to be, but we just did not turn up at yeah. any stage of that World Cup. And also, I think that's fair, yeah. If you look at the teams that did well, Italy, after Calciopoli and all the Juventus players being in disgrace, they had something to prove. Yeah. And actually, they, in 1982... Sorry, sorry, they did it without Luca Toni, who was like one of the most feared strikers in Europe. And when he didn't score, other players stepped up. Like, uh, yeah. Yikita was like a really great goal scorer that tournament. Absolutely, yeah. But, but you know, they had something to prove, you know. Like, those Juve players, they, it was basically, they went away to a mountain retreat with Italy. And it was like, right, we'll show them. And it was the same in 1982. And Paolo Rossi came back after his, um, you know, uh, match fixing or betting scandal. And then... Do you not think that... Um, England also had something to prove, and we we talked about these divisions in the in in the England team. Surely there would have been even more divisions in the Italy team with you know Juve's Juve basically disgraced the. It know, was a very Juve heavy team though. <laughs> That's the thing. Well, true. Like, the captain was from Juve, you know, Del Piero Juve. Like it was a quite a they, they formed so, the core there, of the team. There would have been divisions to heal. I think, um, I, but I think they had great leaders, you know. I, I want to um, point out as well is that in England, one of the things I've always pointed to is that we had two of the best centre backs in Europe at the time. We had two of the best centre midfielders in Europe at the time. And when I've said this in the past, like North American fans in particular have got on to me and saying this seems like a really homer pick. And said, no, no, that was reality at the time. That is not me being English biased. That is the reality of what Champions League football was like from 2004 to 2006. John Terry, Rio Ferdinand, Stephen Gerrard and Frank Lampard were amongst the elite players of the Champions League. And they were competing at teams who could theoretically have won the Champions League. Chelsea didn't win it and they were probably the best club team in Europe at the time. That shows how good some of those other teams were. How many of the Italian players that weren't at Juventus can really say that a couple at Milan maybe maybe but but I think the, the point is is that they you know they like those those England players were so fulfilled at club level yeah you know the like those Italian players were hungry to prove something the Germany team that had a feel-good run to the semi-final in their home tournament they had something to prove they were setting Germany off on a new era after some uncharacteristic failures in in previous tournaments um france it was basically it was the chicago ball things again it was the, it was the, it was it was the last dance for for sedan and for Henri mm. and for those for those players so all of those teams had something to prove and an england team in the middle of their prime walk, slept walked into that tournament and never got out of first gear yeah no that's, that's absolutely right i don't see that as a as a contradiction of what i'm saying i, th- I see that as an extension of it you know England had 
I can't help but shake that 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 assumption that we had at the very start, you know, the club over country. I think most of us agree with that. That's something that most England fans I've met ever have agreed with. And I almost think that in 2004, 5, 6, that was the default for the players. Frank Lampard was clearly in a Chelsea cult at the time, as was John Terry, as was Ashley Cole. Uh, Gerrard was the main man at Liverpool and was trying to drag them uh, as far as he could with the ably assisted by Xavi Alonso. Uh, I think that's a, that's a big part of it. And I don't think that's something that afflicted the Italians. I don't think it's something that afflicted the Germans who were clearly like combined in a national effort just to avoid embarrassment in 2006. And they ended up being the marquee story of the tournament. I really want to talk about Germany 2006 at some point. I could wax lyrical. Yeah. Love that. Scene. Yeah, I mean, they were really unlucky to, to to lose that semi-final as well, really, weren't they? I it was right yeah. in the death, wasn't it? Yeah, all over Italy in that game, and then they just they did that Italian thing and just soaked it up and uh, you, and hit them. Why do we think this England team failed ultimately? Though was it a case of uh, we? I think we've all agreed it's not necessarily that the players weren't good enough. They they're obviously good enough, but why why didn't they do it? Was it they weren't a good enough team? They weren't they weren't good enough together. Individually, they might have been good enough, but they weren't good enough as a team. I think, think it's a combination. Of went, do you think we went into those tournaments thinking they just thinking they would win and not actually having to? I don't think England ever thought they'd win a tournament. Go into a tournament thinking they'd win. I think they, they might have gone in thinking they had a good chance, but I don't think they'd have gone in thinking right, we're going to win this tournament. Surely. For, for me, it's a question of tactics, because in hindsight, I look at it and think in the light of what happened in the, in the 10 years following, you can fix that team with with so little effort. It, you, it's so easy. Rooney becomes a false nine in the Fabregas mold. I mean, it you, you sort that Lampard, Jared conundrum out so easily. But we are at a point where these things are shifting and. Sven improved England massively, so anything I say subsequently has to be viewed in the light of England were not good and Sven made them pretty good. You do not make three consecutive quarterfinals without being a decent side. I don't care who you are. It does not happen. Uh, and I will die on that hill if I have to. I agree. But, but, oh, that's fair. but the point is that during that period at the same time, tactics were evolving premier league sides were not playing the kind of system that sven as good as he was at coaching his system they weren't playing the same way so we were playing players that looked brilliant in four three threes and four three two ones and four two three ones in a four four two that were not set up for it when you factor in that occasionally you're playing the odd non-fit player who is a superstar like a beckham or a rooney all of a sudden, you've got four or five players who are not playing optimum, like Gerard Lampard, Rooney. I mean, when you thought it was just Rooney that wasn't fit, that was fine. Other players could make make up the difference. But all of a sudden, you're playing Gerard and Lampard out of position, effectively. And now you've got your three most effective players at club level playing out of position. And that's a problem. So I think what happened is tactics moved faster than Ericsson and I, he did a wonderful job of preparing us for the 21st century but he was unfortunate enough to be in a time where other people move faster 
I guess what you've got, you know, what how you've got to think of this is if Ferguson or Mourinho were given their rivals, you know, some of their rivals great players, what what would they have done with it? And, it, you know, you can't really answer that question because you just don't know at the end of the day. But it's hard to say. I don't know. I, I don't blame Ericsson. I rate Ericsson as a, as a good England manager, um, as Pete was just saying there. But it, it is really hard to say. I think it's a combination of, of a lot of things. You know, I think, uh, as Pete said, I think it was partially tactical. Uh, I think it was partially mindset of the players. Um, I think there were some divisions with the, uh, the the big characters that play for rival teams in Premier League football. I think that, um, you know, there is a national scar of, of past tournament failures, which follows England around uh, and probably to a degree will never go away until they finally win a tournament. Um and I think there was also some some bad luck along the way, some injuries that could have gone in a in a different way as well. I think it's just it's like some all red cards. <laughs> there were yeah, there, there was just a lot of factors um, at play. And I think to you know, interestingly, you know, if you look at England's runs, which were successful, all the semi-final runs either involved a weak draw, like 1990 certainly did. Um, 1990 uh you know sorry 2018 certainly did definitely did um so so you either have the luck of a draw um you know or um you know or you just kind of uh you know get a lucky a a lucky sort of escape like they did against spain where they probably should have lost that game 2-0 um so it's I think to win an international tournament, you need luck, really. And it wasn't always on the side. Now, could you also have prepared for those tournaments better, picked a better balanced team? Absolutely. Um, I think it's just a lot of factors. I don't think you can really narrow it down to any one thing. No, I think you're right there. You know, you you don't win an international tournament on luck alone. You don't win it on one thing alone. Things have got to align. Because it's a knockout tournament, well, you know, not all the way through a knockout tournament, but, but you know, essentially a knockout tournament, and you've got a lot of quality in there. You've got the world's best players uh, in in a competition that everybody wants to win, uh, and it's not easy. You've got to have things go your way. You've got to have luck. You've got to have you've got to have it all. You you don't win a tournament just on luck. It's just not going to happen, you know. As much, even if you point at Greece in 2004, well, they know, weren't lucky. Even were then, they? it's not just luck. You know, they had the tactics. You know, they set up their shop well, uh, and they took it on. So, you know, as much as it's a quick fire tournament, you know, it's not over the length of, uh, uh, of a season like a Premier League is, or even a Champions League is. You know. You still need a lot of things going your way, and you've got to be good. You've got to be good, and as good as those players were in 2006, 2004, you know something wasn't quite right there, and it uh, and it fell the other way. Well, I think if you think about it, then this isn't the only golden generation to have failed to win a tournament. I mean, you you, you think I mean there's there's that 
brilliant Belgian or that Belgian squad, or at least that collection of Belgian in- individuals. Go and talk to Holland anything. about golden generations failing to win. Precisely. I mean, Port- Portugal was mentioned earlier on. Yeah, I mean, I mean the Netherlands about crazy. every other World Cup, right? I mean, it's it's amazing to think of all those players who've never won a World Cup, and I mean, ultimately, England's those England squads are they they just join a a, a, a litany of of other squads who weren't able to do it. Yeah, um, I mean, Johan Cruyff never won one. Can we really be upset that Steven Gerrard didn't? I mean, you know. I mean, Steven Gerrard didn't even win a league title, so yeah. you know. Um, but you, you know, you you should, we we had great opportunities at these tournaments. Um, I think that in in all of these tournaments, there were things going on around the squad where you think, well, actually, that upset it. And as as you rightly say, I mean, it's the the quality of the players is just one thing, and there are all sorts of things that can upset it. And you only have to look outside football at other sort of sports and their World Cups to see the amount of preparation and how the stars have to align for it to happen. You know, England's World Cup uh, rugby team in 2003, that was a golden generation, but they were also prepared to it within an inch of their lives. The England cricket team who won in 2019, again, a golden generation, but they... <laughs> the amount of work that they had to put in and the the amount of preparation that went into it and the behind the scenes stuff that you know you, you don't see on the uh, when you're watching the games but the amount of work that goes into those efforts it's immense and i don't think any of these tournaments england have had that there's always also those that rugby team and that cricket team learned from a lot of mistakes. You know, if you look at that Woodward, um, that Woodward side uh, that won the Rugby World Cup, like they learned from all those grand slams they didn't win. <laughs> you know, like Absolutely. the the same with the uh, with the the limited overs um, know, pr- cricket team. You know, they 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 had yeah. so many failures and they learned from them and they took those inside. And England football teams don't learn from failure. They, they just carry scars. They shrink. Yeah, exactly. Well, they just I, I, carry I, I scars. Their own experience and the experiences of the teams before them. And I, I think more it, more importantly than the players carry the scars, although that is true to a degree. And the fact that 2018 went the way it did is they were a new bunch of players. If you look yeah. at the, the story that we've told, other than Sven, when we fail, we replace the coach. And since then, when we fail, we replace the coach. So there's no opportunity. Except in 2018. Well, 2018 wasn't a failure by standards because we went in expecting to do nothing. We reached the semi-final. So the narrative was one of success. Whether that's a fact or not is irrelevant because narratives carry the day, as we know. So ultimately, what we went into was we expected to... (sighs) to do quite well to a degree and ultimately that was what when we finally expected to do well that was when we dispensed with Sven but in all other instances we've gone in with inflated expectations and dispensed with the coach as a result and so it's, it, we've had to start from square one so often and I think this is maybe a Premier League mentality where we've seen like Chelsea the ultimate example of this you sat the coach you get someone else in you retain your champions league place or win the league and go on to the next year you know you get rid of 
Mourinho, someone else comes in and, and does the job. You get rid of Ancelotti, someone else comes in, finishes the job. I'm not sure that works in international football. And it doesn't, but also England didn't make the right manager choices after Sven. McLaren, disaster. You know, uh, Capello, good at qualifying, disaster in the actual tournament that he went to. Um, you know, Hodgson, placeholder. Um, you know, like the managerial choice. Actually, when you look at when you look at what came after him, Sven starts to look really good. Um, but that's only because they made such poor choices and I you know didn't even mention Allardyce there for God's sake mm. so so yeah I mean we're way in the weeds now because we've kind of gone past uh, where we yeah. were but 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 you know I think um England and international football is is um you know something which is uh I- immensely complicated and sort of ingrained in the national psyche isn't it mm. um and I think you know to, to Southgate's credit like he has tried to approach it like a manager who is kind of looking at it tactically and preparation wise and how he wants to set up and not as this big emotional exercise, which is how a lot of England managers have tried to do it. Yeah. Well, but I mean, I guess the argument is also that, you know, like you say, the expectations are totally off at this point. Well, yeah, once you do okay in one World Cup, the expectations... Well, they, right yeah, the they'll one. be there again in 2021 or, you know, would have been there last year. He might have already been gone by now, for all we know, if it wasn't for coronavirus. But, you know, I, I guess we will see. Yeah. I know that's a reasonable enough kind of place to bring this to an end, I think, because we have spent a little while talking about the Svenja and Ericsson team. And uh, I suppose the ultimate epitaph that I can point out is... After 50 games, which is always a decent marker for how good an England manager is, after 50 games, the best managerial record for an England manager is Alf Ramsey. And that's predictable. I think everyone would expect that. But the second best England managerial record after 50 games is Roy Hodgson. So (laughs) there is two ways of looking at this. One is that... Maybe we've been reassessing all of our history of managers wrong all this time. And the other is that maybe you don't judge a manager after 50 games. England has been a bit of a bane of all of our lives so far as a national team. And I think we all hope that if nothing else, they can just be entertaining. Because I think one of the things that has come out of both of these episodes, 2004, 1996, 1998, we are much happier when England just have a go. There's been fewer more soul-destroying tournaments than the ones where England just do not turn up and don't try and beat the opposition. There are a few things worse than the 2006 World Cup. There was maybe the one or two in the, the latter stage of the Hodgson era where he lost faith in his team. But the long and short of it is we want to see England have a go. And we'd rather that than... <sighs> Another semi-final where we just kind of grit our way to it and don't really have a go and lose in the semi-final in a way that we're always going to. So we want to see a little bit of flair. We want to see some of these talented players that are lighting up the Premier League. And I think that's what we all want for the future. Uh, And that will do us for England for the time being. Uh, I think we're all quite glad of, of that. Uh, I hope it hasn't driven us all to drink, but um, we're going to finish this series next week with a look at a very different side from the 2006 England team, uh, the Liverpool team 
under Roy Evans, the Spice Boys. Steve McManaman, Jamie Redknapp, Robbie Fowler, they're all going to be coming back for one last look at this uh, this season. So uh, we hope you join us for that one. Until next Just time, got see you again. suits. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Uh, possibly the most eclectic fashion choice of an FA Cup final. So until then, take care. We'll join you next time. If you enjoyed this week's show, you can find more of us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Acast, or your regular podcast provider. Don't forget to rate and subscribe. You can keep up with us on Twitter at 4ATBpod. Thanks for listening.